0: I'm not one of those fussy people about journalism. I'm like a chef. Like today in my restaurant, today I'm going to make a cake. Tomorrow I'm going to make a meat dish. Mm -hmm. And if it works better with asparagus, I'll do asparagus. And so that's how I got into podcasting. So when I look at any kind of content right now, I go, what's the best way to prepare this piece of content? Where does it belong Mm -hmm. best? And then I pick that. And I don't think, oh, this is an old media thing. You know, because people that go, oh, TV's over. I'm like, people are watching more tv than ever it's just in a different place Mm -hmm. it's not broadcast it's streaming right like you look at the trends but just because something is popular right now doesn't mean you like nobody thought pivot would work i was like trust me it's gonna work and if it didn't i would have moved on to something else but i knew it would that one i knew would
1: work nobody straddles the worlds of tech and media quite like kara swisher Since her early days covering the internet for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, she's built a singular career helping us all understand what's going on behind the scenes in Silicon Valley. As the co-founder of the All Things Digital Conference and the co-founder of Recode, she's grilled everybody from Steve Jobs to Mark Zuckerberg to Elon Musk. Along the way, she's become one of the most distinctive voices in podcasting as the host of On with Kara Swisher, co host of Pivot, and host of Recode Decode. Now she's out with a new book, Burn Book, a tech love story, where she chronicles the rise of the internet, the dangers it poses to humanity, and why she still has hope for the future, all while calling on the industry to clean up its act. Part memoir, part manifesto, this book isn't just a juicy read. It's also a valuable historical document, giving readers an inside look at the architects of some of the biggest tech moments of the last 30 years, and dishing on what these masters of the universe are really like. We sat down to talk about how the media industry is transforming, why some tech bros seem so immature, and why Silicon Valley seems 10 steps ahead of the government. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So, Kara, I'm so glad you're here with us today. I want to jump right in. You studied at Georgetown, where you got your B.A. in journalism and literature. And during that time, you also were looking at the history of propaganda, particularly Nazi propaganda. And this is, I think, something that's so interesting to know about you, given what you later covered in your career. How much of what you learned about Nazi propaganda in college is showing up in our world today, do you think?
0: Well, it's similar. It's not different, right? I mean, people call it misinformation. It's just propaganda. Um, So I was always very attracted to how do you get a population to shift in opinions by manipulating them via media, right? Uh, Whatever the media happens to be. In Hitler's case, radio was important, but it was well beyond that. There was magazines, there were pictures, there were posters um, depicting Jewish people as animals, essentially, Mm -hmm. dehumanizing them. You know, Nazism obviously gets most of the attention, but it's not uncommon. And, And in a positive way, too, by the way. You can use propaganda to get people excited about something. You know, the war effort here in this country and things like that, you can use it any way you like, but it can move populations. I was also interested in persuasive speeches. Like my favorite piece of writing is the Gettysburg Address. Very short, very persuasive. And so I was always interested in how it was done. And what I was particularly interested in was the system. Like, huh, how did they do this? How did they pull that off? Right. You know, and it's like a recipe, you know, they're following certain recipes that tend to work on people. What is the recipe? Well, it's a number of things. Repetition, fudging facts, Having enough factual stuff in there to make it believable, not being outlandish, playing on people's fears that exists all the time about government, about authority. It starts off very slow and then builds over time, mm-hmm. creating fear. I mean, what's astonishing, and I would recommend people read Berlin Stories by Christopher Isherwood, which Cabaret was based on. yeah. It was the most open society before the Nazis, like crazy open society, tolerant, interesting, innovative, and then it shifted. And so everyone uses Nazism a little too much, right? So easily online now, but it's not the worst comparison, right? We haven't gotten to their terrible end yet, but we certainly could get there. You can see the pieces of it. And so I'm always interested in both the systems and the systems that push back at this Mm. stuff, because that happens too. There's ways to combat it that work rather well too. But there is an inherent nature of people to be fearful and hopeful. Yeah. They'll go between one or the other, but fear works just as well as hope. It does. It just does.
1: So this sort of understanding of propaganda, how did you take that into your career in journalism at the beginning? Um, I had a really interesting
0: interview by a lawyer for Google one time who was very sharp. She'd worked at Twitter. And her point was that Google was built for speed, accuracy, and context, right? Mm. That when you typed in ADL, you got ADL, right?
1: Right. You got what you were asking.
0: Speed was important, but accuracy and context was really important, right? When you change those structures that you build on and you do speed, virality, And engagement, Mm -hmm. you come up with something very different, which is Facebook, which is not true necessarily. It leads you down all kinds of roads. And so very early on covering the internet, the idea that it was a little like a casino, which many people have compared it to. It's got qualities of addiction. Mm -hmm. It's got qualities of enragement, which equals engagement. It has qualities of making you feel bad. It certainly has cigarette-like characteristics, right? Yeah. And then the worst part is you need it for work. You need it for life. You can't sign off. You have to be online.
1: There's no other way to operate. In you this can't society. really live in the world you can't. without it. Exactly. You, can't. you started working at the Washington Post in the 90s. You were covering technology. Mm-hmm. What made you see the writing on the wall that the internet was going to change everything? And why do you think that these kind of, like, legacy media wise men missed this big thing that was so clear to you? Because it wasn't in their interest. I had no interest, right? Mm. You know, I didn't want to keep the system
0: that was going on alive. I don't care one way or the other, but it had no impact on me. So when I saw what was happening, for example, there was a ticker tape thing in, like, an AP station at the Washington Post. It was right near the front. And it would go, type, 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 type. Mm-hmm. Here's the news. And I was like, why are we waiting for it to type out? Like, you can see it on the computer. And I kept saying that to them. I was like, why do you have this thing? Right. Except for, like, quaintness. Well, this is where we get it off of. I'm like, why? It's on the computer. And people would make fun of me. I kept, like, going, well, if you have this, you don't need this. If you have email, you don't need letters to the editor. Why would you need them? Mm. The classified thing was very particular to me. I was writing about retail for the Washington Post, and all the retailers died in Washington, the the big stores, Garfinkels being one of them. That was what paid for display advertising in the Washington Post. That was a business issue. And I was like, Mm -hmm. huh, this is not going to end well. Yeah. And then the classifieds, the three things were subscriptions, classifieds, and display advertising, right? Classifieds were terrible. And then when I saw Craigslist, I'm like, oh, so it's free It's effective, and it's constantly changing, and classifieds are static, expensive. Who's going to win in this exchange? I was like, Don, uh,
1: hand up. That's a problem. You mean Don Graham, the head of the Washington Post?
0: Yeah, yeah. And he was never irritated by me. He actually embraced technology compared to other people. Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do if that's your business? Yeah. You have to shift, right? And then subscriptions, when it was all free on the internet, initially they were like, it's not good. I'm like, it will be good. Right. That was what they were always like, why it wouldn't work. And I was like, it will work. It doesn't work
1: yet. Yeah. Right, right, right. So one of the things I'm so curious about is that since your time at the Washington Post and then through the, your time at the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. at the Times, at New York Magazine, you've worked all over the place, you have carved out this identity for yourself that is very independent of any from mm-hmm. any of these outlets that you've worked at. How did you mm-hmm. do that? How did you maintain control over your work. I think everyone has control over their work. They just
0: don't think they do. They always mm. think they're at the behest of other people. I see it in, including in young people still. It's like they're on an achievement wheel. Yeah. And if they only please Joe, you'll be good, but you aren't. Like I was like, "Hmm, is that true? Is that I was always questioning that, and I think that's what actually a good reporter does. I also had a really good sense of who I was. Both my good qualities, and my bad qualities. Like, I really didn't like being lectured to. I just didn't. Didn't like it. Didn't like it. And then I was like, the people I admired in journalism, they were good no matter where they went, Mm -hmm. right? The institution needed them more than they needed the institution. And that sort of taught me That talent is what was going to get you to where you wanted to be.
1: Right. And so, you know, a lot of this traces back to 2003 when you launched All Things Digital. And it was Mm -hmm. a big pivot away from your career in print media. So what was the breaking point for you? Well, a couple things. One was I was sort of the premier internet
0: reporter at the time. I was breaking all the stories. And so I was a very good scoop person. And then I had a column called Boomtown, Mm -hmm. which I kind of liked. And so my wife then, Megan Smith, got a job at Google. Like, they had been interested in her, and I urged her to do it. And there was a very obvious conflict of interest there. And so you couldn't put a disclosure in the Wall Street Journal that was easy enough for people to read. And so that was an mm-hmm. issue. And then it was, I just didn't like their coverage. I just thought it was, I could do it better. And I there was a moment, and I write about this in the book, where, do you know— you know this is a journalist, the to-be-sure statement. The journal loves it. To-be-sure. That's a journal thing. I hate yeah. it. Yeah. So I was writing, I think it was a web van or one of those companies, and it had so much funding, and it wasn't going to work. And it didn't mean that grocery delivery wasn't going to work. It just was too early. They spent too much money, like Google Glass, directionally correct, executionally wrong. And I knew it, and I could say it, and I did enough reporting that I actually had some expertise. And I wanted to say it. And one of the editors was like, can you get someone else to say that? And I'm like, what? Like, why? And so I hated the to be sure statement. To be sure, some people think Webvan could make it, right? Whatever. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it. I sent it in. To be sure, some people think Webvan has a chance. But they're idiots. Like, I wanted to put that part in. (laughs) And they don't let you do that, right? Mm -hmm. You know that. And so reporters go back, whether they're political reporters or business reporters, and they're like, ugh. Let me tell you what really happened, right? And and I was like, I'm going to create an institution that does that. Yeah. Where you hear, when Peter Kafka's writing about something Comcast had done, he'll say, this is what they did, which is the reporting of, of what the news was. Here's why they did it, right? And just rely on his expertise. And it doesn't work if you have people who aren't good reporters. It does not work. It becomes punditry and venture capitalists talking about Ukraine on Twitter. That's what it becomes, which is laughable.
1: So what is your take on, you know, there's like a media apocalypse happening right now. Well, there's always one. Right. But it's been particularly bad lately. Recently. I mean, yeah. you know, you were mentioning that the business model was radically changing in the 90s with the decline of revenue from classifieds. There are significant parallels with digital advertising. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is there a future for media? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of people my age who think there's not. Yes, there is.
0: You see, one of the things is when you become like black and white about things, it's just no way to live. You know what I mean? Right. There's a lot of small, interesting, little, very speedy little ships that economically work just fine, right? Their costs are in line with their expansion and their costs are in line with their revenues. That's right. what has to happen, right? Unfortunately, that's really small, right? There's a whole bunch of small little outfits that do great. I do great. Everyone's yeah. like, podcasting sucks. I'm like, oh, please don't get into it. I'll take all the money. <laughs> make a lot of money from podcasting. Right. And I love when they run a New York Times article. They're like, it doesn't make any money. I'm like, sure. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Of course it does for some, and it doesn't for many. right? It's a business. It's called the mm-hmm. news business, just like it's show business. And right. I focus on the business. What's the actual business? I also think you can do very well if you make great content and have your economics in line, whatever it happens to be. But it's not the apocalypse. It's the same thing that's been happening. It's just continuing. Digital advertising is dominated by Google and Facebook. It just is. Look at the numbers this past quarter. Like, they own it. We don't own it anymore. And so what is your business model and what is the right size you need to be? It doesn't mean you can't be highly effective at a small size, but you have to figure out what your business model is. And then you have to recognize it's not a very good business. Like, in general, I always point to the New York Times, which is considered the gold standard of this thing. And I think it made $2.4 billion in revenue and a couple hundred million in profits hmm Facebook had $40 billion in profits or whatever the number just was for the year.
1: Like, are you kidding me? Is there any way to compete with that? There is not, my friend, <laughs> right? But this is kind of my question, is that, like, it seems like you've almost taken this, like, move fast and build things approach to your media career that it seems like, from reading your book, you've learned some of those attitudes from covering tech, but one big, big, big difference is that there's a lot of money in tech that there isn't mm-hmm. necessarily in media. Today today today. So what advice would you give a young journalist right now who's trying to like make a career in this industry? One,
0: you have to start at what the product is, and I don't. I hate to use the word product, but you are making a product. It has to be entertaining. Mm-hmm. Entertaining slash interesting. I don't want to just use entertaining, but something that causes people to want to pay attention to you, what you do. Secondly, it's got to be useful to people. And third, it's got to be can't get it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Can't be replicated. You can't replicate Scott Galloway. I mean, just can't. Right. You can try all you want, but if you like us, you buy us, right? Kind of thing. And so- That's really powerful, right? That's a super powerful thing. You also have to have your economics in line. And for some reason, reporters hate thinking about money. And sorry to tell you, it's all about money. By the way, media was very lucrative for a long time. Lots of industries. Like there was a horse and buggy industry that was quite lucrative until it was not. Marble stone carvers. (laughs) Right. That's right.
1: When we come back, we dig into some of the most insightful revelations in Kara Swisher's Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. More in a moment. Okay, so... One of the reasons I was so excited to have you on this show, Kara, is you are such a distinctive personality as, you know, anybody who's listened to your podcast or read your work knows you're so you. I am. There's nobody else like you, but I'm kind of wondering, were you always you or did you ever have a phase when you were a child where you were sort of more shy and insecure and hadn't really grown into your full self?
0: No, I wasn't insecure as a child. I think it's an interesting thing because everyone's like, how are you so confident? I was like, I've always been this way. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I mean, the only thing that ever gave me pause was being gay, being closeted. I didn't love that. But it wasn't because I thought I was lesser than. I actually thought I was better than in a weird way. I was kind of lucky. I wasn't angry at men. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The whole thing. I just felt good about men. I felt good about women. And so I didn't like uh, hiding. I hated Mm -hmm. that. That was something I hated. And at the time, You kind of had to, but you really didn't. But you did. It had a price to be out back then because I'm older. Yeah.
1: And so what was that experience like for you?
0: It's terrible. Furtiveness is really hard to do when you're hiding. You know, there's a reason why it's called in the closet. It's just a terrible way to live. It's secretive. It takes away from you so quickly uh, the person you are, and you're not genuine to yourself, and you hide. And anytime there's hiding or secretiveness, Mm -hmm. it usually means you're in a lot of trouble from a psychic point of view.
1: Yeah. Well, I can imagine that must have been especially hard for you as somebody who is so... This is who I am. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So one question I had as I was reading your book is for somebody who is so fluent in where media is going, and particularly how social media influences all of this. Why write books? I agree. You know, <laughs> I agree. Like,
0: I, I didn't want to. I yeah. didn't want to. And I resisted it. Today, two things. One is Walt Mossberg, who's my mentor, was going to write a, a memoir of mm-hmm. his life, because I think he was the most important tech journalist of this generation. And he didn't. He decided he'd rather go look at battlefields and watch baseball. He just mm-hmm. didn't feel like it. So I thought someone should say what these people like. I'm a student of history. I think it's very important to say 100 years from now, someone's going to read this book and go, okay, that's what Elon Musk was like. Mm -hmm. She knew him. I thought that was important historically. And then I also really, really, I had something to say, right? I was like, okay, let me just explain to you how we got
1: to where we've gotten. And I just felt like I had a unique perspective. That's all. Yeah. So I want to get to some of the juicy bits from your book. Okay, sure. So who of all of the tech CEOs that you have ever met, and you've met a lot of them Mm -hmm. and you've met a lot of them from a really early age, Mm -hmm. who has made the most complete like personal transformation? Elon. Elon. Yeah. Yep.
0: What was particular about Silicon Valley was the minute I got there, the juvenileization of men was so clear and obvious. And I think one of the things that struck me was they wanted to be childlike. Like, have the inspiration and imagination of children. Where does that come from? Why? I don't know, because adults are very imaginative. Yeah. Let me just tell you, Steve Jobs never uttered nonsense like this. It was nonsense. And he was so different. Like, so was Gates. So where does that come from? It was ve- I, it was venture capitalists and the indulgence of young people. At the beginning, they were young. Yeah. They were young. And then they get so rich, and then everyone agrees with them. And they get to do whatever they want, and they certainly can do it. They're so wealthy. The wealth is astonishing. And it was all about comfort. And the clothes were comfortable. The shoes were comfortable. It was fleece and soft things and, you know, soft chairs. And, uh, you know, here's your dry cleaning. Here's your haircut. Here's your this. And I thought, wow, it's like extension of college, but a college that I never went to. Like, it was... It was weird. It was weird.
1: You describe it as assisted living for millennials, millennials. which
0: I laughed. That's what it was. Yeah. People laughed at that, but I was like, no, really, it's weird. Like, you can't operate on your own. And then at the same time, which I think people forget, is the technology itself, while it can be joining, is actually isolating, and the pandemic... Was the most obvious example of this because everyone could actually physically see it that you were alone in your home with mm-hmm. your computers. Mark Zuckerberg kept saying community and we and we are together, but it's not a community, is it? It's a it's a kingdom, and so that was interesting to me. This all this performative nature of being one big family, and they would create companies were like that. They were companies are not your family. Even your family is hard enough, but your
1: company is not your family. Well, so one of the other things that I think you trace really well in this book is like this, in the beginning, there was all of this optimism around tech and, oh, these tech Mm -hmm. companies are going to make the world a better place through community. That was their words. (laughs) Their words, not yours. Through community, through connection, things like that. And now I think a lot of people are waking up in 2024 and like, ooh, The world is not a better place. There is a lot of bad stuff happening. It feels like the world is falling apart. To what extent do you think that the crisis of democracy is the fault of these tech overlords? How responsible are they for the way our society and democracy have fractured?
0: I'm not going to blame them fully. Look, it's people. Look, yeah, But they facilitated an enormous amount of misinformation. And they just happen to be the ones in charge when most people were getting their information from them. There's a very bright line between the rise of the internet and the rise of this. There just is. Not just this, but radicalization, self-esteem issues, addiction issues. Like, it goes hand in glove. Like, if this was opiates, we'd be like, I see, right? For some reason, with cigarettes and opiates, we're like, oh, look at that link, right? Mm -hmm. This is the same kind of link. Now, again, I'm not one of those people who says they're at fault for everything, But the fact that they pretend that they have no culpability and liability needs to be there, there's no regulation to speak of that has any teeth. And all the regulations that apply to them are old, the old antitrust rules. There's no national privacy bill. There's no data transparency bill. There's no algorithmic transparency bill. We're still working out how AI should be developed.
1: Yeah. So looking back, do you think that there was a moment, an opportunity that was missed sometime in the last 20 or 30 years where, where, there could have been laws put in place. There could have been yes. regulation put in place, and and there wasn't. And what was that moment?
0: Well, I was there when the communications decency act—I covered it for the Washington Post. When the, the Section 230 is part of the communications decency act, most of which was thrown out on constitutional grounds, but that stayed. When they got so powerful, I didn't know why that stayed quite the same way it was. Mm. we got to revisit is what we got to do. I think, honestly, if I had to pick the Obama administration, mm. I thought they did a bear hug of tech. And they, ne- they never, ever put any good antitrust things in place, privacy bills, um, et cetera. And I think that administration was deeply in love with, with the tech people. And they were. They were. They were the stars of the time. And so, you know, they owe us. They owe the American people and the globe some of their incredible amounts of lucre, they do. They just do. And I'm not, a, I love, I'm a capitalist at heart. Like I build businesses, but even I know when I'm getting a handout, right? And so I just feel like we have to right size the situation. It's very similar to, has happened before with the railroads or electrical or gas. We bought all those things. Now, again, it's not perfect, but it's certainly, they have some level of culpability, they have some level of liability. They have some level of regulation, not perfect, but you imagine a group of people that have none? They have no regulation? I don't. I've never seen it. What do you think
1: people in 30 years will feel dumb that they weren't paying attention to now? In the same way that, you know, you were so prescient 30 years ago about what's coming. How
0: impactful AI is going to be. Like, it, like right now, the same thing is occurring when the internet first started. Uh, When I was saying, you guys should use this, these emails, you should use, you know what I mean? I was like, this looks like it's going to be a big deal. Everyone was like, oh, it's so dumb. What am I going to use it for? I don't get it. What Mm -hmm. is it? And I was like, it's everything. And they're like, what do you mean everything? I said, what's the world? There's a tree. There's a car. There's a building. I said, it's everything. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't explain it to you. And so I think a lot of people right now are into AI. They come into two camps, this sort of disaster camp and this yeah, too so hopeful where, camp, where the techno-optimist. I do. I think the techno-optimist bullshit is bullshit again. Mm-hmm. That said, I think the doom-scrollers are just as bad. It, it could be anything you want. Like, what is fire, right? Is it going to burn your house down or is it going to warm you? Like, I don't know. Yeah, It could do either. I think the media does a disservice. Like, oh, students are going to cheat. I'm like... Okay, students have always cheated. It's just right. a new way to cheat, right? I don't feel like this is like the greatest revelation. Nor should we be wasting our time writing about it. It's going to get better. We are not as a species. Right? AI is going, going so, to get better. Yes, and it's and it is us. It's us better. It's inevitable that the tools will be used for good or bad, and it's a toss up about mm-hmm. who's going to win. But the bad people, this is good for bad people. But it's also
1: good for good people. Right. What's the one thing you hope people take away from your book?
0: I hope they laugh a little bit. You know, I laughed. Look, there's a couple things. If you didn't know a lot about internet history, I think I do a very breezy way to explain how it happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, understand that it's my opinion about these people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm. I, I, I suspect I'm going to get a lot of "She's wrong," you know, "She's wrong about Elon or she's wrong about Mark. They're a great men of history." Okay. I don't think so. I think they are, and they aren't. So let me explain to you how I look at them. And I think historically, when people look back, there are all these accounts of people that give you a lot of insight to how people thought Mm -hmm. at the time. And so I think that's why it's a valuable historical document, I guess, in terms of I was there, I saw it. I know these people. I know these people,
1: and I'm here to tell you what I saw. Right. So my last question for you is, what is your kids' relationship to technology? And, 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 and how do you feel about that? And I'm particularly interested because you have both teenagers and toddlers. Young kids, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're in basically two different technological cohorts. Sure,
0: they are. Well, they've all grown up with technology, let me say. They're right. digital natives, every one of them. So for the small kids, very simple, frozen. And Moana. That is their entire yeah, relationship. Mine too. With technology. <laughs> so that's their whole relationship. They look at pictures. They, they, they have a very little relationship with technology. It's just a new way of looking at pictures. I don't think it's that different than pulling out an
1: album. But are you going to take a different approach with your younger kids than you did with your older kids?
0: No, because um, Megan and I, who, my ex wife and I, were very good about it. We weren't scared of the technology. One of the unfortunate issues with my kids is you know how some kids are like, can trick their parents about technology? Well, they couldn't trick us. Right. Megan was the ch- chief technology officer of the United States and worked at Google. There <laughs> right. was no getting around us on technology. Like, they could try nothing. We knew all of it. So what we did is I allowed them to try things as much as they wanted. Mm-hmm. And they are not addicted to technology. I would say young people are very sharp. They are not staring at the phones all the time the way adults, I think adults are, hmm. honestly. I think people that are older, millennials and above, and Gen X have a much more problematic relationship with technology than young people do.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Because I think they know it. My kids, I find very tasteful about what they use. I think they're smart. I think they're smart about their media consumption. I always encourage them to try everything. And and then we talk about it. I love tech, and I'm enthusiastic about its great possibilities. I just would like them to lean into the possibilities of greatness
1: is what I would prefer. <music> Wow. Well, Kara, it's been so interesting talking to you about your career, covering the world of tech and this unique position that you've carved out for yourself within this industry that helps us just understand what's going on here. Um, But I want to get a little bit more personal and learn a little bit more about you in a segment that we like to call The Last Time. So when is the last time you went out without your sunglasses?
0: Oh, never. Um, Never. I, I always wear them. There's not a time I don't wear them. What about at night? Oh, I don't wear my sunglasses then. No. I, I, it's just, you know, actually people always joke to me about it, but I have a light sensitivity. Yeah. So that's what it is mostly. So right. if it's not
1: that light out, I'm okay. When's the last time you had coffee before bed? Every night.
0: Why is that? What does it do for you? I, I like it. It tastes good. Yeah, I like coffee. And uh, it doesn't affect me. I don't. It doesn't keep me up. There's nothing I can't sleep through.
1: You know what? I'm like that with Diet Coke, and I think it's because my mom drank, like, five Diet <laughs> Cokes a day when she was pregnant oh, with dear. me. <laughs> um, when's the last time you signed an NDA? Oh, a long time. I tend not to, although I'm not particular about it. When's the last time you talked to Elon Musk? Ugh,
0: it was a while back. Not too long ago, but he was asking me what I thought he should do at Twitter, and then he got mad at me for reasons still unknown, and... Uh, and that
1: was that. When's the last time you were really, truly shocked by something that one of these CEOs said or did?
0: Elon. I think when he did the tweet about Paul Pelosi being part of a gay love mm-hmm. triangle,
1: I was, I
0: was not just shocked, but horrified and appalled.
1: Well, Kara, I've already taken up way too much of your time. But this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you making time to talk with us. Thank you. You can find Kara Swisher's Burn Book, a tech love story, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and Allison Bailey. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Aaron Dalton. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Dave O'Connor, Michael Erlinger, and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.